the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, where the conversation always gives you a foundation that is built on biblical principles so you can intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, and the reality we live in, and history. Host Joe Gaona covers topics like apologetics, worldviews, contemporary culture, and the Word of God to help you articulate a defense for how you live your Christian life. See how you can get involved in support Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics by visiting ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com That's ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com Joe, where is that magnifying glass? How you doing today? This is Joe Gaona with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. We're here to intellectually think of arguments, look at history, science, archaeology, and philosophy, and see if we can stand on our worldview as we put it on a scale of truth. And as we look at the reality that we live in, does your worldview make sense? Whatever it may be, whether you're an agnostic, an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a mysticist, a Christian, let's look at your worldview and my worldview, and we'll see if it makes sense. So we are talking about the translation of the Bible. We started from the very beginning of the first century. Last week, we ended up talking about the life of Erasmus. But today, we're going to talk about his final days. He's about 40 years old. He was born in 1466. And by the way, Tyndale was born 28 years after Erasmus. 500 years have gone by since Johann Gutenberg invented the press in 1450. They're learning how to use this. More and more printers are coming out by the day. And although some of these uh, areas, like in England, you had maybe two or three printers. In Germany, you had lots of printers that were learning to press. Now, it was here that Erasmus accepted the printer Johann Forbians from Basel, Switzerland, his request to embark upon a new edition of the New Testament. They would actually take... Jerome's Latin Vulgate that's been around for now a thousand years in Latin. And he would take manuscripts we had of the Greek language. There were six or seven for sure floating around besides other languages. That as time was pressing more and more, we can see that it was pointing to this English Bible. 
And so Johann Forbians asked Erasmus, let's make a Greek New Testament Bible. The first Greek New Testament to be collated was really called the Complantation Polyglot. That was really in 1514. The New Testament was completed in Greek. But it was not published until eight years later. You see, in 1514, the Complantation Polyglot edition was initiated and financed by Cardinal Francisco Jimenez. And this was done in Spain. Now, they started this project in 1502. And so by 1514, they had the New Testament translated in Greek. But the problem is, is that the Spanish translators from Spain, they wanted to create a complementation of the Bible in four languages. That's Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. Of the 606 volume sets which were printed, we only know of 123 today. So like I said, the work started in 1502. And by 1514, two years before Erasmus came out with his, it was completed. But Cardinal Francisco Jimenez wanted to present the full work, the six-volume work, all at one time. And so that took him 15 years to be completed. And it wasn't completed until 1520 AD. Now in 1516, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam who produced this Greek New Testament, it was published by Johann Forbian of Basel, and it was called the Nom Instrumentum Omni. So what's interesting about this, this came out at 1517 AD, almost exactly 100 years after John Haas was burned at the stake in 1415. And you remember what his last words were? His last words were, God, would you raise up a man who calls for reform cannot be suppressed. Now, the way that Erasmus was able to get it out, because it wasn't easy to get out a Bible, let alone an English Bible. But when we're talking about Latin into Greek, it was hard to get these permissions. But we found that Erasmus obtained an exclusive four-year publishing privilege from Pope Leo X. And what Erasmus did, he dedicated his work to the Emperor Maximilian I in 1516. And so that sparked a way for him to get it through, through all the red tape. So Erasmus produced a version of the New Testament in both Greek and Latin, like a parallel Bible. On one side you had Latin, and on the other side you had the Greek. And then he had his second edition that was published in 1519 that was used by Martin Luther in his German translation of the Bible. But it was the third edition that was used by many people. And we can see that it was used by William Tyndale for his first English New Testament. Now, during this time, when this Bible came out, Erasmus sold 3,300 copies on the first two editions 
of the six editions. And when we talk about the editions, there was the 1516, the 1519, the 1522, the 1527, and the 1535. All the theologians keyed on the 1522, the third edition, which had the Coma Johannium in there. Now, most of us know the story about that, and so I won't get into that. But we do know this, that in the Council of Trent by the Catholics, they banned Erasmus' Bible. The Council of Trent held between 1545 and 1563 in Trent was the 19th Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church. That's why I said ultimately from Erasmus came the King James Version Bible. Now, a hundred years later, after 1516-1517, Erasmus' work was dubbed as the Texas Receptus. And this is where we get the Latin word for the received text and became that basis for the King James Version. And this is why we hear the received text. The received text that was finally handed down from Greek manuscripts it was told here that Erasmus laid the egg that Martin Luther would hatch on the Reformation. Because we know in 1517, way on the other side, in Germany, it was Martin Luther that nailed the famous 95 Thesis of the Contentions into the church door at Wittenberg. So we see that Erasmus wrote that Latin and Greek Bible. But there was another gentleman who was living during the time. Like I said, it was already 28 years after Erasmus was born. You had William Tyndale. Now remember, John Wycliffe was burned at the stake. John Haas burned at the stake. And then we get William Tyndale. I want to talk about his life for a little bit here. William Tyndale was born in 1494, and he lived until 1536. He was born in England. By 1505, must have not been more than nine, ten years old, he started his education and he was enrolled at Oxford and grew up in the university. Ten years later, in 1515, at the age of 21, he received his master degree. Now, everyone knew that was watching Tyndale. From the masters and the teachers, the priests that heard about him, the theologians of the day, they knew that William Tyndale was a gifted linguist. And actually, one of Tyndale's associates commented that Tyndale had the skill of the Hebrew language, the Greek, the Latin, Spanish, French, Italian, English, and German language. And no doubt it was this that aided him in his success during his years of exile, especially from England. We're told of a story of one day when William Tyndale was, was eating uh, dinner with some clergymen, some priests, and this clergyman happened to say with the dogma, he said, we are better to be without God's law than the Pope's. And that 
infuriated Tyndale, and he could not help but to say, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. It was this kind of aggressiveness that would get Tyndale in exile. Now, as I read Tyndale's story, it wasn't that he was off to get in a start of, of condemning people or going after people. But the zealousness he had as he began to talk about God's word, especially around the popes and the priests who would abuse it for so long. It was a hundred years or so, and they still wouldn't let no one write a translation in English and this is something that God had put in Tyndale's heart to get the Bible out that all men everywhere, young and old, could read it in their own vernacular. As we come to the close of the first half, stay with us as we get into the second part and continue talking about William Tyndale and how he gets the English Bible out for the first time in history before it was legalized by the kings and the popes of the day. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. Don't go away because there is much more to come with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. Throughout All Ages Ministry, 1530 Apologetics goes into the public high school to build up the student's character to intellectually think about their worldview and weigh it with truth. Studies show 75 to 85% of all college students who grew up in a Christian home are walking away from their faith. For more information about 1530 Apologetics, go to throughoutallages.com. Welcome back to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And now, here's your host, Joe Gaona, on K-Praise. Here we are on the second part of talking about how the Bible got translated. We are in the era of the early 16th century, should I say? And we got done talking about Erasmus, and now we are talking about William Tyndale, as he's growing up, were around 1520, 1518 A.D. In Germany, Luther has his things going on in 1517 as he nails the thesis on the door of the church. But I want to talk about Tyndale before we get into Luther. We know from Tyndale's New Testament that we are going to see develop, that Luther's German Bible appeared about 1522. And when Tyndale acquired a copy of Martin Luther's German New Testament, that inspired Tyndale. And Tyndale's Bible is accredited with being the first English translation to work directly from Hebrew and the Greek text. So by 1525 A.D., the printing of the English New Testament was begun at Calling in the summer and completed at Worms, Germany. Now they had this gentleman named Sir Humphrey Monmouth. He was hospitable to William Tyndale. He actually financially aided him and others in the accomplishment 
to translate the scriptures into the commonly spoken English of the day. Now Humphrey, he owned a gigantic fleet of ships. And this is how William Tyndale's translation reached every corner of the English empire as these ships would keep on delivering these Bibles throughout the land. But as the story goes, as William Tyndale would be producing this English Bible in England that they came after him. And he had to leave. He had to go to where there was more printers. He had to go where they would treat him more fairly. And he wouldn't be watched like a hawk. And so he went to Germany in 1524. Now we know Tyndall had been forbidden by the Catholic Church to translate the Bible into English. And that his life would be burnt at the stake if they would catch him. But as Tyndale came to Worms, Germany, he never returned again to his homeland. And by 1526, he completed the New Testament to be published in English translation and was printed in Worms in 1526. You know, William Tyndale was accredited to be the first one in the English translation, to use the word Jehovah as God's name instead of in some areas where it would have the capital L-O-R-D. By 1526, the Bible was in the hands of every peasant and field man in the land. But Tyndale couldn't hide forever. King Henry VIII was after him. Sir Thomas More, Bishop John Stokesley of London, and they were all on the hunt over Tyndale. And here we come to the betrayal of William Tyndale. You see, Tyndale had met a friend named Henry Phillips, who arrived in Antwerp, Germany in 1535. And Henry Phillips came from a wealthy and notable English family. He had begun in the last couple years, schooling at Oxford for a degree in civil law. After consuming his father's money, Philip had evidently come into contact with someone who was still anxious to apprehend Tyndale. So as Phillips would begin to mingle with the pubs around there, with friends who would company with William Tyndale, he began to be very social with the English merchants and one day he found himself in the company of Tyndale himself. And Tyndale invited him in as, as he would hear from his speech. He sounded like a young man of a, of a lawyer. Tyndale invited him to eat at his house. And this was one of the biggest mistakes Tyndale did was to put his trust in this friendship of Henry Phillips. We're told one day in Antwerp that Philip had made an occasion to eat with Tyndale. And as they walked through the narrow roads and the narrow alleys in this one turn, Tyndale had told him, you go first because the road was so narrow. And it's here that Philip says, no, brother, but you go first. And it was when Tyndale went around that corner that there were two men or more waiting for him to apprehend him and arrest him. So they bound him with ropes and they took him uh, to the attorney there. And eventually he went to the castle of Val Vordi. 
Tyndall was thrown into one of the foul, smelly, damp dungeons underneath the castle. Now we know in 1535, Tyndall was arrested and jailed. 1536, he was tried for heresy and treason. In an unfair trial, Tyndale was in the dungeon of the castle for at least 18 months. The Tyndale was condemned as a heretic. And a few days later, they brought him out and paraded him and cast him out of the church. They took him into the town square crowd. And they gathered as they took and rejected his priestly robes. Now we don't know why, but two months had gone by. And as they took him to the stake to be burned, his lips moved with a final impassionate prayer at the place of execution. And it's there Tyndall was then strangled and burnt at the stake in the prison yard October 6, 1536. And at the instigation of agents of Henry VIII and the Anglican Church, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. This prayer was answered three years later in the publication of King Henry VIII's 1539 English Great Bible. And the English Bible finally getting in the hands of every man and woman and child. When we talk about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages were just that, Dark Ages of the bubonic plague, many diseases, children not living long. There was very little social mobility or chance to move upward in status during the Dark Ages. But conditions were moving upward in the Middle Ages. A serf who lived under the manor of the Lord was likely the descendant of a peasant who had served the ancestries of that Lord. And for centuries, a person's life was all but guaranteed to be exactly like the parents' lives. Life lived under the medieval feudal system that everyone owed allegiance to the king and their immediate supervisor. Feudalism was based on the exchange of land for military service. That someone would watch you, and that usually would be a king. And the king often granted estates to the nobles. And you would have the nobles construct large estates, and it's there called the manors, that they would be trained knights, soldiers of war. And then you had the freemen. They weren't many of these guys who owned or rented land from the lord. But most of them were serfs, peasants. Serfs could not be sold as slaves, but they could not leave their manor without permission from the Lord or the nobles. The Lord provided the serf and his family a safe place to live and a land to grow food. And in exchange, the serfs, the peasants, would require to work a particular number of days on the Lord's personal fields. Western Europe were often incapable of controlling all of their land. So in exchange, the king would find someone to be a nobleman who he would grant estates to. But as the printing press began to move forward and society became more literate, books, pamphlets, reading and education began to flourish and societies, at least the people within these societies, 
the very serfs, the very peasants, begin to find powerful sense of meaning to life and liberty. As God now was shaking the ground of politicians, religious people, and the culture that they lived in. Poor men, villagers, serfs understood that liberty was fought with a price. As more and more men would be burnt at the stake, these villagers, these serfs would see these godly men give up their lives for what they believed was right and true. Europe, England, Switzerland were moving toward reform. When kings would not be underneath popes, and popes could not threaten people with excommunication, that a man's means for sanctification had to do with a personal relationship between himself and God. Repentance was not buying indulgence to pay something back, but a true repentance was of the heart. And the people all along Europe and England and Switzerland began to sense this movement that was taking place. Sin could be cleared white as snow as in the days of the first apostles. Baptism and Jesus as Lord and Savior was needed for salvation. Purgatory would be something a plowboy would know is not true. That you wouldn't be able to find it in the canon of scriptures. That in the workplace a man could read his Bible. Nuns would soon be married and priests would become clergymen who were married. The world was waking up. They found Jesus saying in these very Bibles, There is nothing you could do of yourself but with God. And only with God all things are possible. Works cannot be redeemed up. Payment of debt could not get you closer to God. The renaissance of humanities taught man was capable without God and was spreading. The religious world was shaking like a reed in the wind. Men were finding purpose in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The universal church was about to explode into many pieces. Yet, theologians, pastors, clergy would find themselves back into the simplicity of the Word of God like the very first century. You had Michelangelo doing his paintings in the ceilings of the Sistine Chapel, Leonardo da Vinci in his Mona Lisa pictures, and then you had Charles V, who was king of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor. You see, Charles' rise to power occurred at the same time that Martin Luther was leading the Protestant Reformation in Europe. We'll talk more about that next week. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. That's a take, and this has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. You can learn more about your host, Joe Gaona, how to support and get involved with 1530 Apologetics by visiting throughoutallagesministries.com. That's throughoutallagesministries.com. 1530 Apologetics is vigorously setting the pace to give easy answers to hard questions in the culture we live in. So be sure to join Joe at this same time next week for more biblical principles to help you intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, the reality we live in, and history. This has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. 